This is episode number 26 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the bi-weekly program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective, because unfortunately no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. The liberal mainstream media cannot be objective, and the conservative now state-run media has been completely compromised. We, however, at the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual One Pod. That's Individual, the number one pod. I'm going to get to a whole bunch of news, including uh, some massive vindication for this program on the issue of Bill Barr and how he portrayed the Mueller report, which is happening even as we speak, as Barr is testifying in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And so we'll get to all the most recent Trump-related news. But first, we have a really great guest. His name is Jonah Goldberg. He is a columnist for National Review and the Los Angeles Times, and he's starting a new media venture, a conservative, somewhat anti-Trump Donald, uh, anti-Donald Trump media venture with Stephen Hayes, formerly of the Weekly Standard. And uh, Jonah joins us now. Jonah Goldberg, welcome to the podcast. It's great to finally be here. Yeah, great to finally uh, speak with you. Uh, I don't know if you even know, but uh, we, we first met uh, back in uh, 2008 at a uh, Friends of Abe event here in Los Angeles that was uh, kind of hosted by our mutual friend Andrew Breitbart. And I've always been interested in, in your positions on things because I can never really predict them. Uh, do, you, do you get that a lot, that, you, that you're, you, as, as conservatives go, you're, you're not a, a cookie-cutter, predictable guy? Would you, you, would, you, would you agree with that assessment? I, I would like to think that's true. I, I, you know, I mean, everybody in our basic line of work relies on a handful of people to help them think through some positions, but I generally try to start from first principles or start from what I know and work my way through and not go with the talking point stuff. So I, I take it as a compliment, but there are lots of people who, who really despise that about me. So, you know, <laughs> each his own. Well, I, I understand that. I get a lot of the same kind of reactions on, from, a, from a different kind of perspective. But uh, part of the reason why I want to start there is because we're living in an era where basically the number one position everyone is forced to take is where do you stand on Donald Trump? And as a longtime conservative, Jonah, I'm I think our listeners would be interested to hear how is it that you came to your position on on Trump and how it might have evolved since the beginning of of this uh, whole saga back in basically the summer of 2015 when he started to run for president. So can we take can you take us through that very very quickly? Sure. And if I get bogged down the weeds, just you know whack me over the head. Um, look, I mean, I think the first column I wrote making fun of Trump um, was probably in 2012. Uh, so, you know, there are some people who have these weird, in 2015, who had these weird conspiracy theories trying to explain my motivations for being critical of Trump as if one couldn't come to them naturally. And I was like, look, did, did I get in a time machine, you know, and go back and insert this column into the record uh, to, you know, to bone up, you know, to beef up my bona fides on this? Um, I grew up in New York City. I grew up reading the tabloid papers. You know, Donald Trump was a known quantity to me most of my life, and I never took him very seriously. Um, and uh, I don't, and, and so that, that, you know, whether that bias was part of where I came from starting in 2015 is, is totally fair to speculate. Um, but what's, you know, but it does point to a sort of basic fact is that um, the attitudes towards Donald Trump I'm not the one who changed. I didn't change my conservatism. I didn't change my ideology. I didn't change my position. The people around me changed, and they started to rally to Trump um, in 2015 and 2016 as he became more popular with the, uh, a, a, a segment of the right. It's worth remembering that he never got majorities in almost any of those in any of those primaries. Correct. Um, but the sort of talk radio listener crowd, the cable news crowd where he cultivated a following on Fox and Friends, uh, that gave him enough of a uh, slice of the electorate 
that in a 16-man race, he could keep powering through. And then as he kept powering through, more and more people, as often happens in politics, started to rally to the inevitable or perceived inevitable winner, because people like to back the, the winner. And I just didn't go that way. And um, so my position, you know, my posi- I've been fairly consistent on Trump all along, and my view on Donald Trump remains that um, I don't think he's a person of particularly good character. I don't think he's a particularly serious person when it comes to um, understanding or policy or trying to do his homework. I think he basically brings sort of celebrity reality TV values to politics. And um, I'm not going to stop saying that simply because it worked for him. Now, that said, I don't call myself a never-Trump person anymore. For me, which I was explicit about in 2015 and 2016, is to the extent I called myself never-Trump, which was not like a huge part of my life or anything, was that I was never going to vote for him, which I didn't, and that I wasn't going to lie for him um, and, or endorse him. And I didn't do those things either. But my view was that after 2016, you only have one president at the time. So never Trump really didn't mean anything for me and was sort of over. Um, But I wasn't going to all of a sudden start changing my views simply because he was president. Uh, There are a lot of people who like to use never Trump as a pejorative or as a stand in for anybody who's critical of Trump or they might want to make it synonymous with the resistance. I'm not a member of the resistance either. There are lots of things that he's done, or I should put it this way, there are lots of things that have been done on his watch that I'm very much in favor of, or at least I think are perfectly defensible. Um, I like most of his, I certainly like both of his Supreme Court appointments. I like a lot of his judges. I haven't done what some people like Jen Rubin have done, or Max Boot, which is basically um, dismantle and defenestrate everything that they claim to have stood for prior to 2016. Um, And so that puts me in a bad place with a lot of people, because I don't get full resistance credit, you know, with people (laughs) who think everything I have to do has to be aimed at at, at tearing down Trump. And I don't get... uh, I don't get team player credit from people who think (laughs) politics is a team sport. And I've come to peace with a lot of this stuff. I used to get much angrier about it. but I think the best explanation for what happened in 2016 is that a lot of people, for reasons that have a lot to do with cultural trends, social trends in this country, they, they basically see their partisan affiliation as part of a larger sense of identity in the culture war, a larger sense of identity in terms of who they are in this country. And, um, and so when push came to shove and they were asked, whether or not they could stay, uh, whether or not they were going to be a party guy or not, they a lot of people who had taken positions that would just sort of suggest that you could never come around to Trump um, came around to Trump because at the end of the day they were party people. And um, there's some people I can forgive for that. There are other people I have a harder time forgiving for it. But I've never really much cared about calling myself a Republican. I mean, I am a Republican to the extent I tend to vote for Republicans because it's the more conservative of the two parties. But it's never been a huge part of, like, who, who I see in the mirror. Um, it's never been, a, like, a huge part of, of my moral universe. It's just that I see politics as way downstream of a bunch of other stuff. And um and this, this, in this age with polarization and partisanship and, all, and tribalism and all of the rest, that rubs a lot of people the wrong way. And so I've lost some friends. I've certainly lost some fans. Um, I've gained a few new ones, but probably not as many as I've lost. Uh, but I can look myself in the mirror, and I, 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 I'm okay with it. I hear you. I've had a, a somewhat similar experience. I, I'm very curious. You, you mentioned that there are some people that you can forgive for their Trump, I'll call it a sellout. Uh, others that you cannot forgive uh, for the, for doing the same thing. Who are those that you you cannot forgive? Well, I mean, I, I'm not saying that if, if I saw them, I would turn my back or them or turn my back on them, or that I think they're now just bad people. Because I, one of the things I've been consistent on for 20 years is I think politics should be a very small part of your life and not define who you are. But, you know, the people who are easier to forgive are the, are the politicians and the political, you know, not to sound too pejorative, but the political hacks. 
in my experience, if you're political, you know, if you go on TV and you're identified as a GOP or a Democratic consultant or operative or you know something like that, I've always expected you to kind of lie, you know, or at least mm-hmm. be a very aggressive defense attorney for your client, which is the party or a specific politician. This is why I always hated being put up against sort of Democratic consultants, because they would always just go with the talking points of the day. They would never concede the other side had a better had, had a, at a point. And um, if you tried to show any nuance, they would use it as a weapon against you. And that's the same problem that I know a lot of liberal writers have when they go up against GOP consultants, because that's, that's how uh, the sort of the gladiatorial nature of cable television stuff works. Um, of the people I have a harder time sort of reconciling stuff with, you know, um, it's it's certainly it's a bunch of the, the, the sort of religious right people. You know, Franklin Graham, like I just, you know, you, there are these people who have used religion as uh, the prism through which they define all of their political positions. And but they always insisted that religion came first. And there's been an enormous amount of bending bending the scripture to fit the, um, the man. Um, you know, I'm more pained than angry at, you know, my friend Bill Bennett, who I still consider a friend, but, but given that he, what he has written about character and the importance of character and the importance of statesmanship and the importance of telling the truth over the last 20 years, I found his sort of conversion to Trumpism to be very hard to explain. Yeah. And there are a bunch of people like that who come from the intellectual side of conservatism or the values side of conservatism, who are supposed to be standing for principles that um, are not supposed to bend with the election cycle. And a lot of those people bent them to the election cycle. For me, uh, Jonah, in the media realm, if there were two people that stood out that have confused me the most, I would say it would be Mark Levin and Britt Hume. Uh, Do you share uh, my opinion on that? Um. I see them as very different people. Um, I consider Brit Hume a friend. I don't agree with everything he says or tweets and all the rest. Um, But I think Brit gets caught up in the, you know, there there are certain people, you know, part of the problem is one of the distorting effects of a lot of this stuff is, um, you know, Trump behaves badly. I think we can state that fairly plainly. And he breaks norms. I think that's an obvious truth. And what happens, though, is a lot of people who have made peace with Trump then get very, very angry um, or upset um, at Trump's detractors who also violate norms, who also behave badly. And they tend to focus a lot on that stuff. And I think sometimes Britt in his sort of media analysis has has is too comfortable pricing in uh trump's norm behavior norm breaking um behavior and then but still holding every uh, holding his critics to the same standard mm-hmm. and i think that's sort of a problem mark i think is a different kind of creature uh mark is a really is a really brilliant guy i i i i have not liked his approach to politics for for a while and he's not a huge fan of mine either but um, I think when push comes to the shove, you will still find, and, and, and I, I, I could find the tweets, um, when push comes to shove, Britt will criticize Trump for um, being his own worst enemy and that kind of thing. And, um, but I probably should just leave it there. <laughs> well, the difference is that, that uh, with Britt semi-retired, uh, Britt doesn't have the same financial considerations that Mark does. And financial considerations really are driving a whole lot of this, in my opinion. And that kind of gets me to to your next venture. You, you've created quite a bit of news because you and, and another guy I respect, Stephen Hayes, formerly of the Weekly Standard, are uh, converging to create a, a, a new uh, conservative media outlet. And you've already referenced that it's kind of hard to define your niche. And I'm very curious, Jonah, wh- where do you see the niche for this this outlet uh, going, what you've already referred to it as not necessarily an anti-Trump conservative media outlet, but a, I, say, I think you said it was a post-Trump conservative media outlet, which is interesting since we still might have five and a half more years of Trump. Where do you see the niche of this new venture? 
Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, you know, niche is not necessarily the dirty word that um, some want to make it into. I'm not saying you do, but Sean Hannity. And again, I, we, you know, full disclosure, I'm a Fox News contributor. I have considerable disagreements with a lot of people on the opinion side these days, but I'll still defend the news side. Um, certainly I'll defend Brett Baer and, you know, and Chris Wallace and a lot of those guys who are trying to do um, good work. And, 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 you know, if you turn on uh, the 6 o'clock news on Fox News, you'll actually get a news report. If you turn on, you know, MSNBC at 6 o'clock or CNN at 6 o'clock, you'll have this day in Trump outrages. And, you know, Brett, I think, has been fairly heroic in, in trying to um, not give in to those kinds of temptations, pro or con. That said, look, I mean, Sean Hannity is, um, I believe he's still the highest rated um, host on Fox News on the highest rated network um, in the highest rated hour. And on a good night, he'll get about three and a half million people. That leaves roughly about 328 million people who um, aren't watching him and who aren't necessarily interested in approaching politics the way that Sean does. And um, one of the things, you know, it's, it's funny, one of the things that Steve and I have heard at, at speeches during the Q&A for a decade at least, in every, almost every single time when we're seeking, speaking to political audiences, college audiences, or sort of business audiences and that kind of thing, regardless of ideology, we'll hear people say, um, where can I where where can I go to find just media I can trust now whether it's and when they mean that they don't they mean partly reporting but they also mean sort of analysis of the reporting and um there're just a lot of people out there who feel like their interests um are not being well served and particularly when you look at the 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 sort of media landscape right now the left of center, we can have an argument on whether or not the Washington Post or the New York Times are left of center. I think they are. doesn't mean they're bad newspapers, but they, I think, Correct. you know, they, they generally, when they make mistakes, they make mistakes from that direction. Sure. And when they, when they follow a narrative, it's very rare that they follow a conservative narrative, you Correct. know, and pack journalism tends to move left. Yep. And, but if you look at the media landscape, the, 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 left, the left of center, however you want to define it, is packed with lots of lots of lots of different uh, platforms, different podcasts, different um, approaches, lots of reporting um, of an ideological nature and a non or, or an attempted non-ideological nature. You look at the right of center; there's very little of that. National Review, which I love dearly, which I'm leaving after 21 years, doesn't do a heck of a lot of reporting, um, and there aren't many other outlets that that do reporting either. And one of the things that we want to do is fill that market gap. And you can call it a niche or you can call it, you know, an underserved part of the market. But we think that there are enough people there that uh, we can make a go of it. And it's not just necessarily conservatives. There are lots of, you know, I mean, lots of decent, open-minded liberals who actually want to hear what the serious conservative argument is about something, but they don't trust a lot of the outlets where they go to find it. And there are outlets where they can go to find good stuff. Commentary does great stuff. National Review is great about that kind of stuff. Um, you know, National Affairs is one of the best intellectual journals in America. Um, but in terms of broad, um, sort of broad brands that the American public knows, it's basically, you know, the Wall Street Journal editorial page is really the only right-of-center product that first of all, is attractive to high-end advertisers, is attractive to high-end readers, um, and that you can sort of forward an article from the Wall Street Journal editorial page to your liberal cousin, and they won't say, oh, you, know, oh, you got that from Breitbart. Right? If you say you got it from the Wall Street Journal, they might actually read it. And we don't think, you know, the Wall Street Journal editorial page is great, but we don't think it's cleared the market for that kind of stuff. And it's worth remembering that there were millions and millions of people who voted for Donald Trump in 2016, who then voted for Democrats in 2018. They didn't all become AOC socialists, mm -hmm. but they feel, for whatever reason, legitimate or illegitimate, I and mean, we can have that argument another time, but they don't feel like either the Republican Party or, um, its, or its most famous media allies um, are giving them what they want. And we think that that's an opening for us. So that's, I mean, that's sort of the foundation that we would build on. And there's, there are other parts of the business model, but 
you know, a niche um, in, in a market where there's a huge amount of underserved customers um, can grow pretty quickly and can succeed. And we think we think we have a good shot. Well, philosophically, I'm, I'm right there with you, and I, I wish you the best with it, and, and I hope it succeeds. However, let me play devil's advocate for a second, because hasn't this already been tried in the Trump era and failed? I mean, the, the blaze with Glenn Beck essentially abandoned this idea of trying to thread the needle with regard to Donald Trump. The Daily Wire with Ben Shapiro has drifted more and more pro-Trump. Uh, the bulwark is trying it right now. I don't know how successful uh, they they have been so far, but it, it, it's clearly not something that has gone gangbusters as far as an audience is concerned. To me, I'm, I think we're living in an era where media is essentially building and feeding your own cult, and you're appealing to people who aren't a cult. Isn't that an inherent business problem? Well, it, look, it's... It, <laughs> You know, I, I kind of what was it? Hubert Humphrey, who had the guy in the crowd say to him, "You're the, you're the only choice for for the thinking for the you're the only choice for the intellectuals in this country." And Humphrey said, "That's great, but I need a majority." Right. Um, I get your point, but at the same time, you know, it's, it's it's sort of analogous to the people who say, "Oh, you know, dot coms don't make any money." Look at BuzzFeed; they're doing all these layoffs and stuff. You know, BuzzFeed had something like 1,700 employees. A lot of these places, what they're doing is they are trying to scale up for a valuation that is wildly unrealistic. Um, and that's sort of not our approach to this. Um, you know, if you have, if, 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 you, if you need to sort of build off of the, essentially the talk radio model, where you have to monetize hundreds of thousands or millions of people, then what we're doing may be a problem. It may not. We'll we'll see. You know, we have we have some ideas about how to make this work. But um, if what, what we want to do is sort of stay light, stay guerrilla, hoist the pirate flag, and build slowly, build trust, and do interesting things that we think, um, particularly given the business model stuff that we have in mind, that that um, we don't need to get super into right now. Um, could work, you know, and if we don't hire 500 people, but we only hire 15 or 50 over time, um, we think it could be a, a, a going proposition. And um, the simple fact is, and, you know, we, I, if I were going through my normal PowerPoint presentation with you, the simple fact is, is that there are literally tens of millions of people in this country who don't like what's on the menu from either the mainstream media or from conservative media. And we think that's an opportunity, particularly if you focus heavily on reporting, because one thing I've learned, you know, I was the founder and creator of National Review Online. Um, Steve was the editor of the Weekly Standard. You know, the one area where we have some, you know, expertise on is on the editorial side. And one of the lessons I've learned over 20 years on the Internet um, is that news always drives traffic. And if you don't... Um, and, and if you don't have the model, which is, I think is one of the reasons that the, our political journalism is so terrible today, of the clickbait model, of just trying to, caring only about traffic, but if you actually double down on quality um, and membership and attracting people who want to feel like they're part of something that's doing good and doing something important, you can build that business model. And you see across the media landscape, people are abandoning the old advertising clickbait model. Lots of places just don't do it anymore. The Guardian just announced that they have 650,000 membership you know, or subscribers who are sort of in on the mission. Uh, National Journal has announced that they're, getting rid of, they're, they're, they're abandoning the, the standard advertising model. Um, we think we're ahead of the curve on where a lot of the industry is going. And we think we can attract enough people to it to, to make a go of it. We're also, you know, also, you know, you host the podcast. You know, as you know, the, the cable networks are monetizing a lot of really old people because they're the last people um, to cut cords. Young people aren't watching, you know, nightly cable news. They don't have cable packages and the rest. Right. If you look at the numbers that Ben Shapiro has gotten for his podcast, if you look at the numbers for podcasts generally, where you can actually have a civil conversation among people who disagree with each other, um, that's where a lot of the growth is coming from, particularly from young people. 
and we think that's a good good market to go after. Jonah, you mentioned that you're a Fox News Channel a contributor. I, I'm very curious, how has your relationship with Fox News Channel changed because of your Trump uh, opposition? Well, I mean, I can't get too deep in the weeds and all of that for uh, for sort of obvious, you know, reasons. But you know, uh, am I on less? Sure. Um, but they, you know, they wanted to renew me, um, which I'm grateful for. Um, there was interest at other networks, um, which I'm grateful for. But uh, you know, it's 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 awkward. I mean, I'm, I'll I'm, I think I I'm, I think I'm allowed without getting in trouble with the PR shop at Fox to say I'm very glad that Seb Gorka is no longer around. Um, <laughs> And um, there are people on the opinion side who just cannot figure out what the hell's going on with me. And there are people on the opinion side about whom I have a hard time figuring out what's going on with them. Let's talk a little bit uh, while we still have some time here about the, the news of the day. And obviously we're living in the, uh, the post-Muller report environment and we're learning more and more every day. In fact, as we're doing this interview, uh, Bill Barr is testifying to the <coughs> Senate Judiciary Committee what, what is your take on this whole issue of how Attorney General Bill Barr uh, portrayed the Mueller report in comparison to what the Mueller report ended up being, and how significant do you think that is? Yeah, so um, I have, a, I have a, 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 an annoyingly nuanced position on this that <laughs> ups, upsets everybody. Um, on the one hand, I do not think that, Bill, that, that, that Barr is... Um, the abject partisan hack that he is increasingly being portrayed as by a lot of liberals. Um, I think, you know, I mean, let me put it this way. Uh, Don McGahn, a lot of people assumed that because he went into the Trump administration and he worked for Trump, that he had sold his soul and compromised himself and, and, and uh, had betrayed things that he stood for and all the rest. And then the Mueller report comes out and turns out that McGahn's kind of a hero because he, you know, he wouldn't break the rules. He wouldn't go along with Trump and all the rest. It is, it is not obvious to me that Barr is dealing with factors that we don't completely understand or know about yet that are causing him to take one for the team pretty badly. And when I say the team, I don't mean the Trump team. I mean the Justice Department, the rule of law, the you know all sorts of principles that he believes in. What, I could be wrong about what, that. What, on what are you basing that? I'm very curious. What, I mean, because I, mean, do I don't know what evidence you're referring to. So, so what are you basing that on? Well, first of all, I look, I don't think that the memo that he wrote was written as a job audition. I think that I disagree with a bunch of it, and I disagree with his position on a bunch of these things, but... I think that he legitimately thinks that the, the Mueller probe was flawed. I have a lot of friends at National Review who make a very persuasive case that the Mueller probe was flawed. And I'm not talking about the Steele dossier and all that kind of stuff. That's for somebody else to argue about. I just mean that in, a, in the constitutional order, if you're going to have an, a fact-finding committee for an impeachment hearing, that fact-finding team should be put out through the legislative branch, not within the executive branch itself. And um, anyway, I think I think the legal arguments that Barr subscribes to, even if I have some disagreements with them, are perfectly defensible. But, but hold on, you don't think that the, there's it's pretty logical that that's the reason why he was hired as Attorney General? I mean, the guy was yeah, but that's a different thing. I, I, yeah, I think it probably almost surely was the reason why he was hired. But the reason why he was hired isn't necessarily the reason why he wrote the memo. And even if it w- was the reason why he wrote the memo, it doesn't mean that this guy who spent has this you know pretty grand career in American you know, legal community and has already been attorney general, was doing it for illegitimate or venal reasons. But doesn't um, mean he wasn't either. I mean, that doesn't... Sorry, no, I agree. I said I could be wrong. So that, <laughs> but anyway, this is part of... I am still in the give him some benefit of the doubt okay. um, All right. camp. At the same time, it is indisputable that his reputation has taken a big... Whack, and deservedly so, from what we know. Okay. The way he spun the Mueller report, I think, was bad. Um, and you know, and I also take I also take the position that I find the way Democrats and Republicans, and this is a point I've been consistent on for twenty years, the way we talk about impeachment drives me crazy. Everyone wants to outsource this stuff to a bunch of lawyers 
when the it's, it's explicit, I think it's what Federal sixty five that this is supposed to be a political process, and the, the the legislative branch is supreme in our constitutional order. It is not this co-equal branches of government stuff is basically a bit of spin that the Nixon administration invented to assert executive privilege it didn't have. And Congress can impeach for any damn reason it wants. And I, I absolutely believe on the merits, Trump has done plenty of impeachable things. Mm-hmm. That doesn't necessarily mean he should be impeached as a political matter, because we've got, you know, Madison never intended that there would be term limits for presidents. We got a presidential election coming up. And moreover, the, the truly dispositive factor in whether or not Congress should impeach, because we are talking about a bunch of hackish politicians, is whether or not public opinion is on their side. And it's not right now. And so I think the question of whether or not to impeach is entirely prudential. But I think some of the things that Trump has done are outrageous. And I would rather live in a country that thought they were impeachable. There are things that Bush and Obama did that I wish the country had thought were impeachable, too. You know, if you go back and look at the articles of impeachment for Andrew Johnson, they're fantastic. I think number 10 is about how President Johnson invited the American people to hold the U.S. Congress in disrepute. And that was an impeachable offense. Congress can impeach for any damn reason it wants. And when we outsource this thing to lawyers and to to notions of criminal due process and criminal standards, it, it basically empowers Democrats and Republicans alike to outsource any real and serious judgment in the hopes that maybe they'll find a smoking gun of some kind rather than simply saying, let's look at the whole picture here. And it drives me crazy. Um, but, you know, again, this is the, these are the kinds of positions one takes when one ha- is utterly politically homeless these days. Right. You know? And that's where I am. Well, I, 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 I feel for you. I, I'm right there with you. But on impeachment, I, I'm, I'm fascinated about your opinion on this because – uh, most people who know you know that uh, your mother was an integral part of Bill Clinton's impeachment, uh, indirectly. Uh, and I was somebody who believed that Clinton should have been absolutely impeached and should have been removed from office for having committed clear perjury and obstruction of justice. And I believe that the Mueller report, as well as other information already in the public domain, shows that the the, the rationale for impeaching Donald Trump is far more serious and 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 far broader than it was for Bill Clinton. So I, I guess what bothers me most is some of the very same people, including Lindsey Graham, who was you know at the forefront of impeaching Bill Clinton, are now in the opposite direction on, on Donald Trump. And the hypocrisy drives me bananas because if Bill, oh Clinton- look, I, I I'm with you on that. I mean, look, I, there's there's just and this is you know putting aside the impeachment thing for just two seconds. You know, this is. One of as, uh, when I wear my just sort of think of what's good for conservatism hat, I try to tell my conservative, you know, my pro-Trump friends at least keep in mind, you know, you know, and ask yourself, what can the next Democratic president do that you won't be an amazing hypocrite for criticizing? Amen. And um, so yeah, no, I, I have I have no problem with the argument on the merits that. Um, Trump should be impeached. I really don't. Um, uh, but the merits are only a, one factor in this. You know, Clinton was a second-term president when he was impeached. Nixon was in his second term. There is something about impeachment in second term that makes more, you know, political sense in a way because you can actually have the president's conduct as a referendum in the upcoming election. And whether or not the Democrats can get their act together in time to do impeachment hearings in a way that would actually persuade the American public and themselves, never mind uh, Republican members of Congress, never mind Republican members of the Senate, to actually go ahead and impeach when that actual process might be just a couple months before the election, it's become, again, it becomes a prudential question. But I'm not going to defend Lindsey Graham's changing positions and all of this stuff. I'm not going to defend you know the changing positions of, of a lot of people. And this is one of my great incredible frustrations with all this. I find that the transactional argument for Donald Trump is, I may have disagreements with it, I may do the cost-benefit analysis differently than some people who make it, but if you want to say Hillary was terrible, 
it was worth it for the judges, it was worth it for the tax cuts, all these kinds of things. Yeah, but Trump drives me crazy and he's an embarrassment. I find that an utterly intellectually defensible position. The problem is, is that in our political climate, and this gets back to the stuff you were talking about before, is that the people who actually believe that stuff, including most of the Republican politicians I've met, um, they all make transactional arguments away from the cameras and the microphones. When they're in front of a camera and a microphone, part of the transactional calculation is to get up and just lie and change their positions and, and have fire sales on their credibility. And that's why when people say Trump corrupts, they're right. It's because part of the problem is, is that the base of the party or the, you know, that, that loves Trump, they don't want to hear the transactional argument. They want to hear that Comrade Trump is going to deliver the greatest you know, wheat harvests we've ever seen. They want to hear that he's the greatest negotiator. They want to hear that he's playing four-dimensional four chess. And adding to the problem is that Trump himself only cares about hearing that, too. Normally in politics, the way politicians sway presidents is they praise them when they do the things they like, and they criticize them when they do the things they don't like. Trump is utterly impervious to criticism, but he's incredibly movable with praise and flattery because of his insecurities. And so you have this corrupting effect on political debate where Republicans feel they're not allowed to say anything critical about the guy because people are emotionally invested in him in ways that have nothing to do with the transactional argument about him. One last thing on impeachment and then two quick questions before we let you go. The uh, the only good argument I have heard for not impeaching Donald Trump is that if you impeach him now and, and it fails, which it would in the Senate, and he gets reelected, doing it a second time becomes almost impossible when he might really go bananas in a second term with no accountability. And you almost have to keep that in reserve as, a, as an emergency uh, situation. And that's how, to me, that's how pathetic the circumstances are where we are. We even have to consider that. Uh, but I, I hear where you are on impeachment. I, I want to ask you two quick things before we go, Jonah. You mentioned there that the politicians say one thing in front of the cameras and, and a second thing behind the uh, when they're not in front of the cameras. I'm curious, how many of the Trump media supporters do you think really believe what they say in praise of Trump versus how many are acting or rationalizing for their own benefit? Can you break that down for us? Sure. Um, and, and I'm glad to do it, but very quickly on the impeachment point, there's a second point along those lines. Um, if you impeach him for this behavior and then he gets reelected, not only does impeaching him a second time become very difficult, you have now ratified the behavior that he took with an election, which makes it a very bad precedent for future presidents, which is something mm. else to consider. Mm. Um, on, on the media people, I'll tell you, it changed. In, in 2015 and 2016, one of the reasons why I was so angry, and I was very angry, was that there were so many people who I thought had the same job description as me who would say one thing when the cameras were on and another thing when the cameras were off. And I, I've generally been sort of a skeptic of a lot of gitchy goo journalistic ethics stuff. I think a lot of that is sort of guild um, you know, enforcement by the Columbia Journalism School. But <laughs> I, I believe really passionately that you're not supposed to lie. And that if you have the job that I have, you're supposed to tell the truth as you see it. And so when I saw people who were columnists and TV pundits, you know, badmouth Trump in private, but then go on and sing his praises in public, it disgusted me. Um, the thing is, there's much less of that now. And that's in some ways even scarier to me. I mean, some of it is because they think, oh, look, the worst predictions didn't come true, which is true. Um, I'm not sure that at, is at the true, same, by the way, Joan. I, I object to that. I mean, what? Just be, why? Because we haven't had a ma national catastrophe? Because the stock market hasn't imploded? I mean, from an ethical standpoint, this is far worse than I ever dreamed it would be. I, I, so, that's, that's, look, I'm, I'm just saying, on their terms, that there were there were people who thought that this guy was going to get us into a war, that they were going right. to do all sorts okay. of okay. stuff, okay. that he was going to run around like an escaped monkey from a cocaine study. <laughs> um <laughs> And um, and for their on their own on their own terms for their rationalization they say look we actually got these judges he hasn't turned out right. to be the okay. liberal I mean I was one of my biggest concerns which I wrote about at length was I thought since he's not a conservative and he's not right. bound by any ideology and he cares only about winning and deals and all that nonsense right. that he was going to come in and strike huge 
crazy deals with the Democrats. I agree with that. And by the way, we're not done yet. That could still happen. But I that hear could, it certainly could happen in the second term. I right. agree. Uh. Anyway, but my point is, is that what's more disturbing to me is how many people who at least used to see the flaws and see the nature of the man don't see it anymore. They actually now believe their BS um, in a way that at least, before, you know, it's, it's a really kind of a weird thing. It was a sign of their character or their decency that at least they understood the BS in 2015 and 2016. Now they believe it. And that creeps me out some ways even more. And I'm speaking in broad generalizations. There are lots of people who that's not true of. But why, why do you think, why do you think that is? is? I mean, when you say they really believe it, have they just convinced themselves? Or did, I mean, what happened? Did they get, was this uh, abduction by aliens? I mean, what, what's the explanation? I don't know that there's a mono, you know, there's an all-purpose explanation for everybody. Um, but, you know, being in favor of Trump is very good for some people. It's been very, very good for some people's careers. And it is very difficult to say to yourself, okay, I'm going to go out there and spin and lie all day long. Eventually, you kind of embrace your own rationalizations. Yeah. Um, you, or you look at, you, know, you, take this, you, you take the logic of anti-anti-Trump stuff, and you look at what Bernie Sanders or AOC does, and you say, well, you know, this really isn't that bad. It's just a bunch of, you know, tweets. It's not anything else. And you start rationalizing and compartmentalizing until you find yourself actually believing the party line. I mean, I think that's kind of common in that that happened that this is not the first time this has happened in politics, but I think it's happened for a bunch of people. There are a bunch of people, I'm not going to get into names because they're there some of them are friends and it's private conversations. But there are lots of people, you know, who would tell me you know, look, I really don't even like Trump very much, but I think the way his supporters are being treated is outrageous and unfair, and I'm, I really want to be on their side. And um, my problem with that is, while I think that's sort of an honorable position, um, at least, you know, to a certain extent, the problem is with a lot of these people, when push comes to shove, and they're forced to choose by th- choose whether or not to defend the president's actions or to defend the interests of the people who voted for him, they almost invariably choose to defend the president's actions. And that's in part because the president's own supporters want that. Mm-hmm. You know, you could, there were so many pieces during the big trade blow-ups where they would talk to people who said their business might be, you know, they might, their farm may go out of business or their factory may go out of business because of the tariffs, but they still supported Trump for what he was doing. And that sends a market signal to pundits and politicians alike. Well, the tail is wagging the dog when it comes to commentary. I mean, the, the commentators are giving the audience what they want because it's good for them. I mean, the, the, everything's reversed. I mean, people used to think that the audience followed the commentator. It, that's now been, I believe, 180 degrees reversed, partially because the business model has changed, fragmentation has provided so many different options that people can pick can- cotton candy anytime they want. Uh, uh, you, you know, you can get whatever flavor uh, of conservative commentary you want, whether it's on the Internet or television, radio, podcasts, what have you, and people will seek out what already justifies what they wanted to believe in the first place. So therefore, now all of a sudden, the power is with the audience and not with the commentators, and very few people are standing up for what they really believe and what their principles are because it's not good for them. It's not good. I, I agree. That is, I'm, not, I'm not sure... We would see eye to eye on on how much that explains the problem, but I, I'm with you 100 percent that it's a big part of the problem. People, you know, so much of the stuff on the right and the left is fan service, right? Um, you know, and I think it's a problem for the anti-Trump people too. I mean, my God, I mean, it was amazing how every single time there was some setback to the the hard collusion narrative. You know, you would have hosts on MSNBC reassuring the the viewers, don't worry, we don't know everything that, that Mueller knows. Right. Mueller knows so much more than us. It's all going to be okay. Right. That's right. fan service, too. I agree. I agree. But I used to think we were better than that, but we're clearly not. Um, I, 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 look, I agree. It yeah. drives me crazy. Yeah. Confirmation, you know, people want confirmation bias, right. um, or at least a lot of them do, I, particularly... I, Older people. Last major subject uh, before we we, uh, run out of time here, Jonah. I I am um, very concerned about – I'm I'm always okay with things as long as I see a path, as as long as I see hope. Uh, There's there's light at the end of the tunnel. I can endure almost anything. 
And from the perspective of a lifelong conservative, it's really difficult for me to see a path out of this. Uh, I mean, no, almost no matter what, I, I cannot see how we as conservatives and conservatism survives Trump. You, I'm assuming you're more optimistic than I am, especially since you're starting a new media venture. What is the path forward for conservatism to survive what we're enduring here? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I have my days where I'm searching Amazon for deals on Hemlock, too. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, first of all, uh, it, it's really worth keeping in mind um, for people from your perspective is that, um, you know, Trump is very, you know, his fan service is basically for people 65 and older. And if you look at the data and the polling for younger self-identified conservatives they are not nearly and charlie kirk notwithstanding um they're not nearly as as in on the cult of personality as uh you know the main as, as the sort of conservative media pretends uh, i saw a poll recently trump was something like plus 22 with white men but only but he was negative two with white men under the age of like 34 and um, and Ben Shapiro actually wrote a great piece of the Weekly Standard getting at some of this. Young people actually have to live, they're, they're, they're less part of the big sort, you know, the sort of self-ghettoization that has happened with, with older sort of retirees and stuff. But they're also less conservative, Jonah. No, that, yeah. look, that's a huge problem. I'm not, oh, look, I'm not saying we have no problems. <laughs> but, there, you know, there's a reason why my podcast is called The Remnant. Um, and, but The Remnant, as my friend David French likes to point out, is a biblical term that means both the sort of a remaining piece of something, but also the thing upon which you build the new thing. And um, I, you know, I, I'm a big believer in, I think it was Edmund Burke who said, example is the school of mankind and he will learn it no other. Um, sometimes you have to show people, not to tell people. And I do think that there's going to be a reckoning um, in all of this. I've always thought this was going to end badly. I'm not necessarily right about in my predictions about how it would end badly. But if you actually believe that your side, that your positions are right, if you believe in free markets, if you believe in limited government, the rule of law, in constitutionalism, you have you need a reason to get out of bed in the, in the morning. First of all, but second of all, you have to have some faith that, given the right circumstances actual life on this planet will prove you right and that there will be opportunity there will be teaching moments ahead that we can build on and you know it was t.s Eliot who said there's no such thing as a lost cause because there's no such thing as a truly one cause every generation you just got to get out of bed and fight the good fight and hope that you know good people will come to your aid and support you and that's sort of where I come down philosophically, that was the point of this book I wrote called Suicide of the West. Um, and that's sort of where I have to come down on all this. But yeah, man, do we have huge challenges? Absolutely. But you know, if the ideas are right, the ideas are right, and, that, and therefore they will be revealed as such through the course of events. And that's, that's always a reason for hope. Unless it's too late, <laughs> unless that turns out to happen at a point where it's already too late and the damage has been done. Um, very, very last question. I if that's the case, then go buy gold right? and just be done with it. <laughs> very, very last question. If, and these are two big ifs, or at least one big if, if Joe Biden is the Democratic presidential nominee and he goes up against Donald Trump in 2020, and I'm not a fan of either guy, but I, I loathe Trump much more than I loathe uh, Joe Biden as a human being, who does Jonah Goldberg root for in that race? Uh, root, I, I, I don't know. I am part of, you know, part of my position all along is that I'm not, and I'm even, and I'm much less of one today, um, uh, a rooter in that sense. Um, so I don't know. I mean, emotionally, I just, I cannot, I cannot tell you because root is a, root for is an emotional term rather than a sort of. Well, who would you, who, who would be better term. for the country to win that race? What would be, be, what would be the best option for the country and in the long term interest of conservatism? Um, I honestly, I, I, I honestly and truly do not know. Um, I don't really care about my vote. Um, I think that, you know, I, I think that one of the problems that we all get into in this, when we get into this sort of hypothetical mode, is trying to make straight line predictions about 
what the consequences would be. A, if Biden gets elected, um, you can, I can imagine all sorts of scenarios that would be worse than an ineffectual and essentially neutered and possibly impeached Donald Trump. Um, and I can also think of all sorts of scenarios where it would be vastly prefer- preferable. I just haven't mm-hmm. done the, my own sort of emotion, emotional intellectual inventory on it. So I don't mean to dodge, to duck it, but that's my honest answer. Fair enough. Uh, Jonah Goldberg, thanks so much for your time. Glad we were finally able to make this happen. Good luck with your new venture, and uh, please keep in touch. Thanks, man. Good luck to you. Now, as I mentioned at the start of the podcast, there's a whole lot of news, most of it revolving around Bill Barr, the Attorney General of the United States. And I have to say that if you go back and listen to the episodes of the Individual One podcast uh, that occurred just after Bill Barr released that now infamous four-page summary of the Mueller report, we pretty much nailed this uh, more precisely and sooner than just about anybody else did in any sort of media, whether it's liberal, conservative, or what have you. Uh, For whatever reason, uh, we were on top of this from the very beginning. Correct. And what we said was, look, um, it is quite possible that Barr is technically correct while still grossly mischaracterizing the nature of the report. And it slowly but surely became clear that that perspective was very valid. There were leaks from the Mueller team to the to the news media, the Washington Post, the New York Times, NBC, saying, hey, wait a minute, this isn't an accurate representation of what we did. Then, of course, there was the report itself that came out after that bogus press conference that Bill Barr hosted, trying to spin his own spinning of the report before anyone ever had the chance to read it. And uh, and then, of course, we found out in the report that, wait a minute, this is not at all consistent with what Bill Barr said. Well, yesterday we found out that even Robert Mueller himself had expressed extreme discontentment with Bill Barr's summary, writing a letter to him in which he essentially said the same thing, which is extraordinary. you got to remember, folks, the, the, the realm we're living in here. Robert Mueller and Bill Barr are friends. The, the One is the Attorney General of the United States. The other is the Special Counsel, former head of the FBI. They choose their words incredibly carefully. For Robert Mueller to even write a letter in this realm is extraordinary. And what he said, when you read between the lines, makes it very clear that he believes that Barr purposely misrepresented the nature of the report in a way that was intended to benefit Donald Trump. And make no mistake, it absolutely benefited Donald Trump because it set the narrative in stone for weeks before the public ever got a chance to see the report, and it greatly diminished the number of people who were interested enough to read the report, especially those on the conservative side. And that's all this was about. This was all about maintaining Trump's cult. making sure that they had no reason to read the report, that they were just going to buy whatever it is that the attorney general said, which then, of course, would be spun by Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh and the rest of Fox News Channel and talk radio and the Internet. And there would be no need to read the report, even apparently by the head of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham today before Bill Barr testified in front of his committee, actually admitted to the public, not under questioning, he did this voluntarily, Lindsey Graham actually said he had not read the full report. He had not read the full report. You cannot be serious! That is astonishing. If, if there was one fact that pretty much encapsulates Everything there is about the state of the conservative, allegedly conservative movement or the Republican Party or the pro-Trump forces and this entire Mueller affair and, and how the truth means nothing, principles mean nothing, ethics mean nothing, being a hypocrite means nothing, that's it. The head of the Judiciary Committee, after two years of investigation into a foreign adversary influencing our presidential election. Lindsey Graham did not read the report. 
And if he's admitting this, folks, if he's admitting this, almost bragging, he's almost bragging about not reading the report, then he didn't read hardly any of it. And the reason why he didn't read hardly any of it is he doesn't want to because it's not good for his side. And Lindsey Graham is a particularly dramatic example here, not just because he's the head of the Judiciary Committee of the United States Senate. Lindsey Graham was, as I referenced in our interview with Jonah Goldberg, he was at the forefront of Bill Clinton's impeachment on very similar but far less serious allegations against Bill Clinton. He was a House impeachment manager. He was the most eloquent voice in favor of the impeachment and removal of office for Bill Clinton. In fact, I was a huge fan of Lindsey Graham back then because I was duped. I thought Lindsey Graham was sincere. I, I thought Lindsey Graham was awesome. And then, as a talk show host in Los Angeles at KFI, I interviewed another congressman who was a House impeachment manager by the name of James Rogan from here in Southern California, who wrote a book about his entire career in the Congress and specifically his role in Bill Clinton's impeachment. And off the air, he and I had a conversation about Lindsey Graham. And he told me the story of how when the House impeachment managers were faced with the Republican Senate basically taking a dive, throwing them under the bus and not having a real trial because they didn't want to have a real trial because they knew this was bad politically. And so they wanted to do a show trial in the Senate, have only four witnesses and, and quickly be done with this, get it off the, uh, off the calendar so that they could move on because they knew it was not helping them politically. And when faced with the Republican senators throwing them under the bus, Rogan told me there was one House Republican impeachment manager who caved more quickly than all the others and who was more willing to capitulate to the Republican Senate than anybody else. And he told me it was Lindsey Graham. And everything that Lindsey Graham has done since then, especially in the era of Donald Trump, has shown what a brazen, two-faced hypocrite he really is. He's a hypocrite even on Donald Trump himself. No one was more critical of Donald Trump in the primary campaign in 2016 than Lindsey Graham. And now here he is giving up whatever credibility he had. And and, and let's be clear, back in the impeachment saga, Graham wanted to be a U.S. senator. And what did he end up being? He became a U.S. senator because he was able to cash in his credibility from the House impeachment inquiry into Bill Clinton to become a senator in South Carolina. And now he's the head of the Judiciary Committee. And he is the biggest Trump sycophant there is, other than maybe Bill Barr. And I've written a a column, which I hope you check out. You can find it at either my uh, Twitter page or the Twitter page of the Individual One podcast, which is Individual Number One Pod. I wrote a column for Mediate where I wrote fictitiously the summary letter to Congress that Bill Barr should have written about the Mueller report if he was not such a dramatic and obvious Trump sycophant. I think you'll find it both interesting and hopefully a little bit hilarious uh, because there are some funny elements to this. I would read it on the podcast, but I think it works better as a written piece. So check that out. Google it if you have to. It's definitely worth your time. But this is just, this whole thing is beyond outrageous. And it is so obvious that what has happened here is a cover-up. This is a cover-up. This report was far worse than even I anticipated. And it is absolutely impeachable. Now, whether it will be or should be is an open question. I, at this point, do not believe that that Donald Trump will be impeached. That doesn't mean he won't be. I don't know what the percentages are, but I think it's probably less than 50%. Uh, before the 2020 campaign gets started, which I've been saying for many months, that's the biggest problem here. There's a calendar issue that people are now finally starting to understand. Oh, wait a minute. How can you impeach Donald Trump when a presidential campaign gets underway? You can't. And, And there's a very limited amount of time here. Now, as far as impeachment is concerned, I believe Bill Barr should be impeached. And there are those who are calling for his resignation and his impeachment who are already in Congress. Because this is outrageous. 
And the the essence of this is the, why it's important is that they're trying to hide what really happened. They don't want you to read the report. They don't want you to put all the dots together. And they know that they can rely on that, especially among Trump's base of support, which is all that politically matters. I love the poorly educated. They're not going to read the report. If Lynn, even in Lindsey Graham isn't reading the report, Trump fans are not going to read the report. There's no need to. And by the way, among the many things that we have learned about the report, CNN went through the entire Mueller report and found 77 times that Trump or his team was found to have lied. 77 lies in the report. Uh, I'm sorry if you lie 77 times in a report of this nature. You're trying to hide something. You're trying to hide something significant. Speaking of lies, the Washington Post has been keeping track of Donald Trump's lies since the beginning uh, of his term in office. He just hit the historic 10,000 lie or distortion mark. I think we as Americans and really people of the world should be so proud that such an accomplishment could be made in such a short period of time. No one thought that was possible to 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 do 10,000 to commit 10,000 falsehoods as a president is really an astonishing achievement. One one that we really ought to sit back and and take note of because it's it's staggering. It's al- you almost have to admire the audacity of Donald Trump to think that he could get away with doing that kind of thing and, and actually do and actually getting away with it. Correct. That's the amazing thing. You almost have to admire in a perverse way the idea that Donald Trump could get away with 10,000 mischaracterizations or lies in his administration. And I've, as I've always said, to be serious for a minute, that's the part of this whole thing that bothers me the most. I could deal with a whole lot of other stuff. But when you have single-handedly turned a lie into a meaningless accusation because you've done it so much, then nothing else matters. I almost don't care about judges anymore. Yeah, it's great that the economy's fine and the stock market's high. That's all great. But in the long run, when you have completely devalued what it means to be truthful or, or any kind of negative connotation towards telling a lie, then you have corroded our culture in a way that even Bill Clinton never even could have dreamed of. That's a cancer on society. And that has, that, that's something we're going to pay for for a very long time, if not forever. By the way, speaking of hiding things, Bill Clinton, oh no, boy, Freudian slip there. Donald Trump, who's far worse than even, I, and I despised Bill Clinton, far worse than uh, Bill Clinton ever dreamed of being in these kind of uh, situations, that Trump and his family have filed a lawsuit against Deutsche Bank to stop them from handing over financial records that they agreed to give over to Congress. Now, the, the conservative media would be going batshit crazy over all of this, and this would be a perfect example, if this ever happened with, for instance, a Clinton doing the same thing. What's he hiding? He hasn't shown us his tax returns like he promised. And now he's suing his own bank to keep Congress from seeing financial records that the bank has already agreed to turn over. What's he hiding? Obviously, it's got to be significant. That's why all the lies. That's why Bill Barr was hired. That's why Bill Barr is going to the mat to make sure that the Mueller report is as muted as possible. And all of this is just so significant, and yet it's going to have so little impact because everything about our system is broken. Our media is broken. Our judicial system is broken. Our politics is totally broken. It's all broken. And all Trump cares about is holding on to that 40% or so. And so far, that's holding. And I don't see how that's going to change. Now, on a semi-bright note, and I mentioned this with Jonah at the end of our interview, Joe Biden is off to a much better start than I thought was likely, given the liberal criticism of him as he is now finally uh, officially announced to be a candidate for the Democratic presidential nomination. He's blowing the doors off of everybody else so far in, in the polls. Now, it's very early. Most people haven't even fully focused on it, but they focused more than they normally would this far out. 
from a primary election. And Joe Biden obviously is a very, very well-known entity, having been vice president of the United States for eight years. What I find most, there's two things I find most interesting about these initial polling reports showing Biden way out ahead of the Democratic field. Number one is he got a huge boost from announcing, which I did not expect. And number two, it is very obvious that Bernie Sanders, who's running number two, is essentially Joe Biden's best friend. As long as Bernie Sanders stays where he is, and he doesn't have much room for growth, he's got a cult, they're a cult of socialists, uh, but as long as they stay with him, that means they're not going anywhere else. And they're not going to Biden. So Bernie Sanders staying in that 20% realm is essentially blocking everybody else from emerging out of that pack and threatening Joe Biden. Plus, having Bernie Sanders in there makes Joe Biden seem not quite as old because Bernie seems even older than Joe Biden. So right now, the best thing Joe Biden has going for him is Bernie Sanders. And there's a long way to go, but this is off to a much better start for Biden, who, again, I don't even like. I think he's a dunce. He's a gaffe machine. But at least he's a good person. At least he tries to tell the truth most of the time. At least he respects our institutions. At least it's possible for him to hit a reset button and for us to go back to some sense of normalcy and maybe try to restart this whole thing again, pretend the last two and a half years haven't happened from, from an ethical and cultural perspective. So he's not a panacea, let's be clear. But it's the least bad option I can see so far. So because Biden's off to a good start, I'm going to change our, our numbers slightly when it comes to how we end each episode of the Individual One podcast, which is the chances that Donald Trump does not finish his first term in office and the chances that he is reelected. So I'm, I'm going to put the chances that he does not finish his first term in office at 7%, a slight upgrade, simply because of all this bar controversy and the fact that Mueller could theoretically hit a, maybe not a home run, but a, a double or a triple in his testimony, because it's clear that there's some significant distance between him and Bill bar. So the Mueller testimony really is the last shot for for anything in the realm of Trump being impeached or theoretically being removed from office, which is still an extreme long shot. And I'm going to put his chances at re-election now at below 50 percent, just below 50 percent, at 45 percent because of Joe Biden, who will beat Donald Trump if he is unscathed through a Democratic primary, uh, barring some black swan event in almost every possible scenario. So uh, so those are the numbers. Please, again, no wagering uh, for your uh, enjoyment only. That'll do it for episode number 26 of the Individual One Podcast. We'll be back on Sunday morning, Los Angeles, California time. Until then, please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share this episode via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual, the number one pod. My name is John Ziegler. This is the Global Story Network.